I'm turning now to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And our title is The Distortion of Human Wisdom or of Human Sight. Look at that word, friends. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's foolishness. Before we convert it to God, before we come to him, before we understand these things and are reconciled with God and know him, then the preaching of the cross of Christ is foolishness. It makes no sense to us at all. The Greek word translated foolishness literally is nothing. The preaching of the cross is nothing. It has no value. It has no substantial content at all to us. Actually, the word nothing in Greek is derived from silence. It's silence, nothing to say. You know, there used to be a phrase, the village idiot. A poor, simple fellow, and he never had anything to say. And he had no opinions, and in any discussion or any talk, he was the silent one. He had nothing to say. And that's the idea, because he had nothing. No thoughts, no depths, no great intelligence. He couldn't react. He couldn't form an opinion. You couldn't put the gospel lower than that. When we're not converted, it's nothing. It's worthless. It's foolish in many ways. Why, it's about a man, a strange man, Jesus of Nazareth who is said to have had remarkable powers and abilities and could command great gatherings, multitudes, when he preached and spoke. But it all came to nothing. And he was executed. It was an unfortunate and a sad end for him. And that was the end of his life, his work, whatever he may have envisaged, That's how we look at things. It's nothing, and it's come to nothing. But it's nothing because we have no need of it. Why, it's a message about sin. It's a message about salvation. It's a message about the need of forgiveness and how forgiveness from God can be obtained. It's a message which says we are eternally lost and cut off from God because of sin. We are sinners in his sight and under judgment. And God has provided a way of salvation, a remarkable way of salvation. It's a message which says because God is absolutely holy 
And because God is altogether just, he cannot let us off our sin and overlook it. He's filled with righteous and holy indignation against sin. And sin must be punished eternally from his moral universe. It must be disposed of by punishment. And God cannot contradict his holy character. We say these things often. He cannot lie, he cannot cheat, he cannot fail, he cannot die, he cannot contradict his holy character. He cannot for a moment be unholy. He cannot for a moment be unjust. The great problem of God. How then can God forgive anyone? and exercise his loving kindness and his tender mercy because he's not only holy and just, he is love. How can he exercise those attributes of mercy and kindness and the message which is so, so simple is that he must come himself in the person of Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. He must come into this world, assume a human body and personality, and he must take the punishment of sin on behalf of all who trust in him. That's the only way that God can forgive, and that's the simplicity of the gospel. Yes, but to us, simple as it is, it's nothing. Why is it nothing? Because we don't feel any need to be forgiven. Because we simply do not grasp the sinfulness of sin and the hatefulness of sin and the rebellion of sin in the eye of God. Because we do not see ourselves and our weaknesses and our faults and the stain which is in us. And because we are blind to ourselves and we don't have an adequate view of God, we don't have a sense of need. Oh, but we say, I'm not that bad. I am not too bad. I am better than some other people. And we imagine, we fool ourselves. We don't realize it, but we're like those scribes and Pharisees of old who were self-righteous and felt no need of the forgiveness of God and of his mercy and of his transforming power. And we're the same. It's because we have no need that the message is nothing to us. We don't see that need. And then there's another reason. Oh, this isn't very easy to speak about, but it's our pride. If there is a God in heaven, and if he is to be reached, and if we are to gain his favor, and know answers to prayers and blessing from him, and heaven in the hereafter, if we're to know these things, our pride says we ought to be able to deserve it. 
I want to be able to say, I merited this. I gained this position. This There's so much pride in every human being. And the idea that we can't do that, and we've got to seek a free salvation, and Christ had to come and bring it for us and die for us and suffer a substitutionary atoning death on our behalf that offends our pride. And besides, that means I'm going to have to go on my knees to God and confess I'm worthless to him and I'm nothing at all and I need nothing but mercy and free salvation. I'm not willing to do that. That's the trouble. Pride comes in. And pride says, if there's a God in heaven, and if it's possible to know him, then it has to be something sophisticated. It has to be something very special. I remember reading the uh, experience of somebody, this is years and years ago, he wrote about this, and he heard an address by a professor, Robert Dick Wilson. This man was a genius. Lived a long time ago, was a professor at Princeton University, and uh, he knew 50 languages, ancient languages. And he was asked, because this was one of his fields of expertise, by somebody, how long would it take me to learn ancient Babylonian? And his reply was, well, in 25 years, you could be moderately competent. In twice that time, you could be an expert. And the man said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. What appealed to him? Well, deep down, he confessed, what appealed to him is he would be doing something which very few other people could do. That's human pride. This is just an illustration. Now, let me apply it. About 50 years ago, I was engaged on a prison visit. And uh, a particular inmate had expressed strong interest in the faith, and I was explaining it to him. This was in the old facilities where you spoke through a small hatch and a, and a thick, wired glass screen, not across a table, so it wasn't easy. But I spoke to him at some length, and he listened so seriously, and it seemed to me a tear came into his eye, and he looked so wistful and desirous, and then he pronounced, and he said to me, it's very, very attractive, but it's far too simple. He wouldn't have it. It was too simple. That same human pride. Tell me something I've got to study hard. Tell me something I've got to do. Tell me something I've got to accomplish. Give me a technique I've got to master. That's human pride. So the gospel is foolishness because it doesn't appeal to pride. It doesn't say we've got to work 
and for the reasons that I've already mentioned. We have no need. What about our instinct for God? Shouldn't that make us interested in seeking the Lord and listening to this message, however simple? No, unfortunately, because life is so full and so crowded. The instinct for God is almost swept out these days by information, work, entertainment. What about conscience? Doesn't that speak and make us think, I need the forgiveness of God? Well, it should, but it doesn't, because we smother it. And we put it aside, and then conscience stops troubling us and stops speaking. So we don't feel our need of forgiveness. The message of the gospel doesn't satisfy our pride. It's too understandable. You know, some while ago I was shown some of the visuals that were coming in to uh, various fields of study, anatomy and physiology and the medical students and so on. Beautiful, you've probably seen them and illustrations of them where layer after layer of a human form peels off. And each time you peel a layer off of the visual, it becomes more detailed. So the first sight you get is just of a human body. I can understand that. Head, chest, abdomen, legs, limbs. I can understand roughly how it works. Mouth, need that obviously, ears, nose, and so on. What an understandable thing. Peel that off, and you get the skeleton. Oh, peel that off, and you get the nervous system. It's getting more and more complicated. Peel that off, and oh, give up. You've got to be a serious student of this to understand it. You know it's like that with the gospel. The part you need to be saved is simple. If you peel that off and you look at the mechanics, it becomes very complicated. The basic thing which will bring you to God. But don't call it simple because the theology behind it or the mechanics behind it, like a rocket ship, a spacecraft. You so understand that? There it is, there its head, there's its there's the rockets that drive it and all the rest of it. Yes, but that's not doing the maths and the engineering. You can take it in and understand it. Many things like that. The gospel is very simple to bring you to salvation. But how God did it and what it cost him. That prisoner who said to me, it's too simple how to explain to him it wasn't simple for Christ it wasn't simple for the son of God it wasn't simple to take the sum total of the guilt of millions of people millions upon millions who would repent of their sin the punishment that should have taken all eternity to suffer compressed into a space of hours horrendous impossible to contemplate. None of the gospel is simple. The works 
are very complex. Don't be mistaken. God is so kind. He's made the fundamentals so simple for us to grasp in order to come to him. And then when we're converted, we start to discover the complexities, the wonders of what God has done, the full scope and size of it. And it is amazing. But I must look at some of these verses in this passage. Dear friends, look at this 17th verse. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The the cross of Christ is the most important thing. What Christ actually did to secure our salvation. There's a great play on words here. In verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. Now in the next verse, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. The Greek actually says, For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And that's a play on words. The apostle says, not with wisdom of words. We won't talk about the deep things of how God has done it at the very beginning because that would obscure the message of the cross. We are sinners. We desperately need the forgiveness of God. Christ in his amazing love has died in our place. If we trust in him, we can have life eternal. That's what we need to know. The full extent of what he did comes later and we're lost in amazement. Not with wisdom of words in the pearl, for the word, the single word of the cross, that's what's important, is to them that perish nothing but unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. Verse 19, these are very deep words. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. What do they mean? Well, friends, learning is so good. Yes, we acknowledge that. The wisdom of this world very often can be brilliant. Science and technology and many, many things, they're God-given, the exploration of this material world and the result in great advances for society and facilities that we enjoy and the study of them. Well, these things are good. And wonderful. But there's a limit to their usefulness. They cannot help the soul. No human learning can figure out God. He has to reveal himself. No human learning can create a formula for salvation. Only God can give the one workable formula 
for salvation, trust in Christ and what he has done. That's the sense. For it is written, and have in mind when we come to the soul and to eternity, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Then humanity is intruding on something too high for it. What about the soul? How to reach God? How to go to heaven? How to have your life changed? How to have holiness and godliness? Then human wisdom must be silent. And God must tell us all these things. And God will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Verse 20, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? All the religious theories of this world pass. Only the message of God endures when it comes to the soul and to eternity. And verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, not by its own research and discovery, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching a revealed message. Well, the alleged foolishness of preaching. And then verse 22, the Jews, what are they looking for? Signs. Christ gave them signs. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And they said, more signs. More signs. We want Massive cosmic disturbances. Every sign they demanded yet a greater one, a bigger one, because they wouldn't listen to the message. They were running away. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. That's human pride. We want our philosophers to discover the way to God. We're Greek nationalists in those days. We want it to be something that our nation has given to the world. And human pride got in the way. So they missed the message. But verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness or nothing, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, if they trust Christ, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And these beautiful words of verse 23, because the foolishness, the nothingness of God, they said this message was nothing, is wiser than men. It'll get you to God. And the weakness of God, Christ dying on a cross and coming to an end, is actually stronger than anything men has ever done because down the centuries it's transformed lives and it's brought people to God. So the seeming foolishness of preaching brings us to God. Three things, quickly, distort our view of these matters. Our desire for moral liberty. We don't want the message of God because we want liberty to live as we like. 
Our pride must be by my works, something that I deserve. Our holding on to the government of life, we will not let God be our guide and our friend and our governor. Well, as we come to conclusion, why? Or what makes the simple gospel the wisest thing on earth? This message that I need a substitute, a sin bearer, a saviour. Well, it's wise because it solves what we've called, and really this is a misnomer, but it solves what we've called the problem of God. And I've already explained that, how God can be both holy and just and at the same time loving and kind. Only the cross of Calvary resolves that matter. Only by coming himself in Christ to die on Calvary as a substitute for our sin can God solve that problem. The depths, the profundity of the cross of Christ, the humiliation which Christ had to suffer, the experience of separation from God. We should have been cut off from God forever. He had to experience what it was like to be separated from the Father. There is a sense in which he could not be separated from the Father. God is eternally one, but he had to experience as if he was separated from the Father to take that aspect of the punishment of sin on our behalf. The depths of the pain, the eternal punishment suffered in ours. Only the God-man could do it. He had to be man to feel it. He had to be God to sustain it. The profundity of the cross, the heights of the cross, so great was the obedience of Christ. He was equal with the Father, shared his authority, absolutely, but he voluntarily humbled himself and came down, down, down. The ultimate act of condescension came from heaven to hell almost for us because he took our place and he had to be obedient to the Father on our behalf to earn heaven for us to obey where we had failed. The obedience of the cross is so great. There's nothing to be compared with it. This is an incomparable act of love. In the history of the world, no act of love like the cross of Calvary. I must close, dear friends. Nothing that accomplishes so much the change of millions of lives, people delivered from sinfulness to holiness, from complete estrangement from God 
to walking with him. What accomplishment. Eternal heaven for millions and millions. The accomplishments of the cross of Christ and the scope of the cross of Christ. Nothing like it. It helps the poorest. It helps the richest. It helps the simplest. It helps the most brilliant. It helps the weakest. It helps the strongest if they repent and come to Christ. Nothing like the scope that there is to the cross of Christ. So simple, so mighty and profound, so wonderful and magnificent, the cross of Christ. I close reading some verses from chapter 3. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, a nothing person, that he may be made wise. You come to Christ in prayer. You humble yourself. You say, Lord, I am nothing. I always thought so well of myself. I am nothing. I desperately need forgiving love and new life. Lord, save me. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Come to him, friends. The simplicity of the message of Christ. Don't dare despise it because it's the most profound and powerful message that you will ever encounter. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all and help us. If, if we've come into this place light in step, thinking well of ourselves, with no sense of need of Thee, Lord, have mercy and kindness upon us. Show us Christ and our need of him. Lead us to him. Show us truly profound things and wonderful things. Lord, help each one. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, the only Saviour. Amen.